We're in Genesis 12, 10 to 20, as we continue seeing God in the book of Genesis. I'm going to read and then we're going to take a moment to pray. And then we'll unpack this passage. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. for The famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house and for her sake he dealt with Abram and he had he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai and Abram's wife, uh, Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh, uh, so Pharaoh came, called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is your sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I am a weak, weak person, and I stand before weak people. We are in much need of your mercy in order to understand your word. We're in great need of your spirit to counsel our minds, to set our restless souls at peace, to bring us, Lord, to a humility, a childlike humility that comes in dependence upon your word. Lord, that we would set aside our agendas as we come to you, that would set aside our plans and purpose in order to see your plan and purpose fulfilled. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, your word will be held high, that we will look and see more of your character and nature, more of your control, your providence in the midst of bringing about your purpose. And, Lord, would we see how nothing we can do can ever overthrow your plan. No sin is too great for you to cover. No mistake is too messed up for you to fix. No life is too corrupt for you to redeem. No situation is too far gone for you to restore. So, Father, we pray that as we see your word and look into your face, Lord, that you would illuminate for us the truth of who you are and the truth of who we are. And I pray, Lord, that your name will be glorified above all. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. That's what he's saying. I'm sure of it. Either that or he's speaking in tongues. And um, is that tongues? Yeah. Someone needs to interpret, yeah. All right. 
It is a great joy to have children in our congregation. I think uh, when we hear the noises they make, we should celebrate with them uh, and be praising God that they are a part of the church. So I hope uh, you parents never feel uncomfortable because I don't um, when I'm preaching. There's far worse things that have gone on in this congregation than kids making noises. Let's, uh, let's unpack this. So in Genesis 12, we've seen the tides really turn in this story of Genesis. We've seen depravity pretty much run loose from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis uh, chapter 11. And consistently, God intervenes into human history and redeems and restores his perfect purpose and plan to have a people for himself. And then humans mess it up again and God intervenes again. And now we get to Genesis 12 and the tides significantly turn because we're not going to focus on the whole world anymore. We're going to focus on, at this point, one man. One man that God has chosen, one man that God has promised to make him a great nation, a great name. From him, all the families on earth will be blessed. The tides have turned in Genesis 12 in that we now once again have some hope that there may be a seed, an offspring that will cut, crush the serpent's head from Genesis 3.15. This faintly given promise, this sort of metaphor that was given to the woman that said you will have an offspring, a seed that will crush the serpent's head. All that you have done, your rebellion against me, eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, All your questioning of my goodness will be redeemed by a seed of the woman. And now we see Abram with this hope, is he the seed? Is he the seed? Is he the one who will redeem the land? Is he the one that will give the land everlasting rest? Is he the one who will crush the serpent's head? Is he the one in whom we will see absolute victory brought to the world? The promises almost make it seem like he is the one. Your name will be great. You'll become a great nation. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Last week, we see him uh, unflinchingly go and obey just the bare word of God. God says to him, go, leave your land, leave your family, go into a land that I will give you with no promise of what that land is going to look like. Israel, at least, when they left Egypt, had a promise that this land was going to be a land of milk and honey, saying that it's going to be prosperous, it's going to be full, it's going to have all that you need. But Abram, he gets nothing of the sort, just leave, go to the land, and I'll give you this land. And he walks through the land from north to south, we saw last week, he lands in Shechem, and there he sees what? Worship, idolatry. Worshipping of pagan gods again. He's just left Ur of the Chaldeans where they were known for moon worshipping, where they would celebrate pagan gods and, and wait for the god Nana to come down and bless them. Now he lands in a new land, the land which God will give them. And God, and the first thing he sees is pagan worship. And the first thing he does is build altars to the Lord God. The true God, the only true God. He goes and builds one in Shechem. He goes to Bethel, which means the house of God, and he builds another. Wherever Abram went, he established a place of worship. At this point, at the end of last week's story, Abram seemed like the seed. Abram seemed like the offspring that would crush the serpent's head. Abram seemed like the one who would be victorious over sin. Satan and death until we get to verse 10 and 11 of chapter 12. Verse 10 and 11 of chapter 12 make it very clear that he is not the seed, that he is not the seed, but we still continue to wait for the seed. Verse 10 to 20 helps us feel similar to Abram. Abram makes him a real person to us, someone that we can relate to, someone that we can connect with. We start to see now what appears is unforeseen circumstances that change the direction of how things were meant to go. Abram was like, I was meant to inherit this land. 
I'm meant to become a great nation. My name is meant to be great. But now, unforeseen circumstances happen, human sin, natural disaster, family issues. Will God keep his bold promises is the question we're confronted with. And the other question that we're faced with is, will this sojourning man or this pilgrim man and woman be able to trust the promise in the midst of unforeseen circumstances, in the midst of natural disaster and human sin and family troubles? Will he be able to remain faithful? And will God remain faithful? This is a real experience of people of faith. We live today as people who have been promised to be uh, that promise that we are now holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. We are now, right this very moment, if you believe in Jesus Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, although we're seated here in this hall. But spiritually, Ephesians tells us, Ephesians tells us, We are so sealed in Christ that we are as good as being in heaven today. That's an incredible picture. Yet it's a promise that is not tangible to us. It's a promise that we need to hold on to in the midst of trials and affliction, in the midst of our own failings and sins, in the midst of natural disaster and family struggles. We are in many ways in the wilderness, just like Israel was in the wilderness after Egypt. And this is a theme that we see very often in the scriptures. God gives a promise and lays it out before the people and then sends them very quickly into a place of testing. And it's through testing and uh, and struggle that we see faith refined. We see the dross of gold fall off and the gold purify. We see the diamond hardly pressed to come out more beautiful than it was before. It's through our faith tested that we find out how authentic it really is. Today, we are very much in a time of testing. We're in the wilderness. We've been delivered out of Egypt, so to speak. Our sin has been destroyed. It's been conquered the, the devil has been bound, the death has been defeated, and we now dwell in the midst of a foreign land, much like Abram, waiting for the promised land, much like Abram, not knowing exactly what the promised land is going to look like, much like Abram. We're waiting for heaven, waiting to be presented to that bridegroom, waiting for the wedding feast. What will it be like? We're in the midst of the wilderness. We're in a time of testing. So as we look at Abram's life, as we think about him being tested in the wilderness, as we compare that to our own life, as we think about our own faith, and as we ask the questions, will God remain faithful? And at the same time, will we remain faithful? Will we endure? This story is about living out in practice the position that God has already claimed for us in Christ. Living out in practice the position that God has already claimed for us in Christ. Abram has got a position in God. His position is that he will be a great nation. His name will be great and all families on earth will be blessed, but he has a barren wife, soon to have no wife because he sends her off into Egypt and he's still got to remember to practice outliving the position that God has for him. How does he live knowing that he is a great nation? He is. It's given. God has said it will happen. He will be a great nation despite, in this story, losing absolutely everything that could possibly make him a great nation. And the question for us is, how do we practice the position that Christ has given us? How do we live in holiness? How do we live out our position of being seated in the heavenly places? How do we live in the position that we are his holy bride that is going to be presented to him? How do we live that out in practice in the midst of the wilderness? 
I hope we can learn some lessons from Abraham, Abram and see how that applies to our life today. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abram's entered into this new land, a land he did not know what would be there, and he's found idol worship to begin with. He's sort of overcome that first testing of faith by establishing altars of worship, but now there's a new test. This land that he's been given is now under famine. This land that he has been given is a place that is not prospering the needs that he, that he and his people uh, require to survive. The first test that he has is, what land has God brought me into? Is God going to let me die here? Much like the Israels and the Israelites in the wilderness, his descendants later on are led out of Egypt. And, and what do they say? God has led us out here to die. God has brought us to this place to kill us. We should go back to Egypt. Did Abram allow his mind to go to that place? We should go back to Chaldea. We should go back to the place where we had food, where we had our daily necessities. Now, we don't know exactly what went through Abram's mind, but we know that he decided to go to Egypt. So he's down the south of this Canaan, Canaanite lands in Shechem, a bit south even more to Bethel. And right down over here, we have Egypt. And Egypt, in the midst of a famine, always had food because of the Nile River. The great Nile River meant that many people would go to Egypt in the midst of a, fa a famine across the land. So it was the obvious choice. The logical choice was we will leave this land and we'll go to the place where there is food, where it's prosperous. Now, what we see here is that he doesn't consult God. In fact, there is no mention of God until later on in the story when God deals with Pharaoh. He doesn't inquire of the Lord. He doesn't seek his counsel doesn't seek his wisdom, but he decides to go on his own decision. Now, we can't necessarily say that Abram was in the wrong by going to Egypt. He's just trying to provide for his family. There's, there's a famine here, and he's just making a logical decision to go south. But there is evil in the midst of his decision-making to come. And we need to think about this message of Genesis, which is summed up in one line in Genesis 15, 20. Genesis 15, uh, not 15, 20, Genesis 50, 20. And we've got Joseph, who's now in Egypt of all places, where Abram was many years later, three, uh, four generations later, Joseph is now in Egypt and his brothers, 11 brothers, have come to him and he is there because his brothers tried to kill him or sell him as a slave. And he says to them, to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So what Joseph says to his brother, brothers was, you meant to kill me, you meant to do evil, but God in his divine providence and divine sovereignty meant good by it. Now, the important thing that we understand about this is that we can't then say, well, if God used it for good, then it all, all works out and I've done nothing wrong. We can't brush it off like that because we meant it for evil. The intention of the heart of his brothers was evil. The intention of God's heart was always good. And this is really the summary of what we see in Genesis and what we see going on in the world. There is a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Our decisions are real, yet God is in control. You make a decision for evil that God is going to bring about for good. That is how complex God is, that 8 billion or whatever is in the world at this point are all making decisions and God is orchestrating this all for good. Just try and wrap your head around that for a moment. It's impossible. I couldn't even control one thing. 
And God here is going, uh, in the midst of your intentions of evil, I am intending for good. That is a a mind-boggling concept that we're going to see a lot in Genesis. A lot of evil take place and a lot of good come from that evil because there is a good God orchestrating good for his purpose. So whether Abram's decision to go to Egypt or not was good, uh, evil, God intends it for good. We don't know. We can't say definitely this was an evil decision. We know later his decision to lie about his, his wife uh, being his sister, that is an evil choice. But to go to Egypt, we can't say for sure that it was an evil decision. So let's see that God is making this take place for good. And what we see here is very much a foreshadow. There's a lot of complex imagery going on. And the foreshadow is of Jacob and his 12 sons who will end up in Egypt, as we've just mentioned. So Jacob is Abram's grandson, the son of Isaac. Jacob is given the name Israel, so God changes his name to say, you are now Israel. He has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph is the one who provides for them in a new famine many years later in Egypt. So first of all, the reason Abram ends up in Egypt as a foreshadowing of the nation of Israel who are going to end up in Egypt, and where do they prosper most? In Egypt. They multiply greatly, which puts Pharaoh in fear of them. So the first image we see is that God's good plan is that Abram, as the forefather of Israel, is bearing an image of what is going to take place. He goes there in the famine as Jacob and his 12 sons end up in Egypt in a famine, and God delivers them by a plague, as 400 years after, God will deliver Israel Israel by plagues. So in verse 11, we see the evil of Abram. When he was about to enter Egypt, so it was premeditated planned, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. So Sarai seemingly has a renowned beauty. And at this point, she's 65 years old. She's 65 years old and she's a foreign woman in that land. So to the Egyptians, she would seem quite beautiful. They're not used to this type of beauty in their lands. Now, at 65 years old, we've got to remember the age is still dropping. We were living in the 900s early in Genesis. We've sort of dropped to the 400s now. We see that Sarai lives to 127 years. Abram lives to 175 years. I'm assuming, assuming that Abram didn't live like a 90-year-old for another 80 years on because that would be pretty rough, right? I'm assuming he was pretty able, especially with some of the stories that he had. And we know that Sarai has, a, has, has Isaac at 95 years old. Also, I believe she wasn't like the 95-year-olds we see today. So we've got to understand that ages were probably scaled back and they were at a more abled body experience for longer in their life, for a longer period in their life. But nonetheless, the scriptures tell us that she was beautiful in appearance and we see very clearly that she must have been because it wasn't long before the Egyptians started talking about her to Pharaoh. Abram's plan is one that is cunning. He's being, he's being protective. He's, he's got this idea that he's going to make sure that God's plan is not going to be overthrown by the Egyptians. He's really, he wants to protect God. He's got what he thinks is good intentions, but he lies. He lies and he says, 
that she, his plan is that she, she is my sister. What we see here is Abram imitating his father, Adam. All the way through Genesis, the garden is being seen again. Genesis 3 is being shown off that we are all children of Adam. Abraham, Abram is very much a child of Adam. Where was Adam when Eve was being talked to by a serpent? Apparently, he was right next to her. That's what it says. She turned and gave the fruit to her husband. He wasn't talking, but he was passive. Here, we see his descendant, Abraham, imitate his, his, his father, Adam, in self-protection. This time, he's not being passive. This time, he's not imitating in his passive quietness. No, he's got a plan. He's active. I'm going to be dominant here. I'm going to lead by example and protect through active planning. But what's he say? He's self-protecting. I don't want to die. They'll see your beauty. They'll take you as their wife and they'll kill me. But, the, but they'll let you live. Right? He, he doesn't, he's, he's worried about himself. He's worried about what's going to happen to him. But in the end, it's actually a pretty clever plan. Because his idea is that Sarai will stay with him as his sister because he takes the responsibility of a father when the father is not there. If he is her brother, then he has the right to give permission for them to take her as their wife or to say no. So his plan would have been like, they'll come to me, they'll see the beauty of Sarai, they'll ask to take her as the wife, and I'll say no. Except it doesn't work like that because Pharaoh is a king and he does what he wants. Luther says, Martin Luther says about this, um, about Abraham, he observes about Abraham that he let the word of God out of his sight. The text indicates that the temptation of unfaith comes immediately after his, his best resolve to faithfulness. And this is often seen throughout the scripture, he points out. He let the word out of his sight. Talking about practicing our position that we've already been given in Christ. Or for Abraham, Abram, practicing his position that God has given him. You will be a great name, a great nation. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. He's not practicing his position because he's forgotten it. He's forgotten the word. The word of God is no longer ruminating in his mind. He's no longer meditating on it. All he is meditating on is him his fear of death. But if he has had the God of the universe come down to him and say, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all families through you. And if he was thinking about that, he wouldn't have made the decision to lie. Because God's word is certain. And if he's going to be a great nation, then he's not going to die, is he? Because he doesn't have any descendants yet. So he wasn't ruminating on the word of God. Rather, he was ruminating on the fear of death and the fear of what is going to come his way. He had lost sight of the word of God. Faith is always tested. Always tested. And often, immediately after we come to faith. So often, this story I've seen so many times where someone has come to know the Lord Jesus and we see them uh, excited and passionate and then a relationship comes along. An earthly relationship is put before them, whether it's a boyfriend or girlfriend, an old family member comes back into their life and they are so wrapped up in the love of this world that they wander off back to the world. I don't know how many times I've watched this take place that this earthly love is greater than the heavenly love that they've experienced when it really isn't. Sure enough, that relationship will fail like it failed once before. Yet the love that God shows his people is consistent and will endure. James tells us in James 1, 2 to 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, be, be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James, 
bold. The brother of Jesus is writing here, count it joy, church. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, when you are faced with sickness and illness, when your sin causes the path to go down an unwanted way, when you're in the midst of other people's sin letting you down or failing you or hurting you. Count it joy, brothers and sisters. Why? Why does he say to count it joy? Because it will produce something in you. It will produce steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, you will be perfected and complete. You will be made more like Jesus, which is what we want so badly, to be sanctified to the likeness of Jesus. Count it all joy. Abram lost sight of the joy of God's word. Abram lost sight that God was just refining him in the midst of a famine in the midst of a foreign land. He was there to trust in the midst of uncertainties and unforeseen circumstances. So he chose evil. He chose evil over trusting. He chose to act in his own flesh rather than trusting in the sovereign hand of God. Let's continue on to see how it unfolds. In verse 14 to 16, we have what takes place. When Abram entered Egypt, the plan's been made. They enter into Egypt. The Egyptians saw the woman. It was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram well. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, Male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Abram's plan turns into an absolute mess. His great plan that he thought would work out for his deliverance, his protection, really turns out for prosperity in a worldly sense, but it turns into a mess. It looks like now God's plan has been completely overthrown. His wife in whom he is meant to become a great nation through, with, is now gone. She's taken into the king's palace. And it seems that Pharaoh hasn't come and asked. He's just said, I'm taking her, and here's a whole lot of stuff. The whole lot of stuff is quite a lot of things. We read it, and we're like, yeah, there's not much money there. But female donkeys and female camels alone were like the biggest thing you could be given. Uh, so I read we see here that Abram's plan is completely, completely overthrown. And this now lingers on for who knows how long. She would have been prepared, living among women, being prepared to be presented to Pharaoh as his wife. And that may have taken a year, two years. We don't know how long at this point Abram is in the midst of freaking out. I've overthrown God. I've, I've destroyed his plan. I've lost my wife. He's got all this stuff. He's rich. But to be a great nation without his wife, how's that going to happen now? Abram could have been stuck for a couple of years before God brought Sarai back. Abram is very much now in these few verses in a place of affliction, although he has earthly prosperity. He's in a place of, of spiritual affliction as he has to deal with his own heart. And I can imagine God was quite silent in these moments. Do you ever feel that? When it feels like we're going through suffering, when we feel like we're going through affliction, when we feel like we've been overcome by our sin and everything we do just seems to keep failing and God is silent. Silent, nothing. The word doesn't seem to be coming alive. People's counsel seems to be empty and void to us. He's silent. It's a moment that we see so often in the Psalms. As the Psalms reveal to us, David's waiting and he says, strength will rise as I wait upon the Lord. And we just wait in silence without the counsel filling us with joy, without the word giving us any sort of experience of joy, we just wait. And it's not a waiting like we're sitting on a comfortable couch. It's a waiting like we're in the plank position, as one commentator says. We're holding a plank 
But we're standing there with weight on our arms, waiting on God. It's not a comfortable experience as we wait in the midst of affliction. But what we trust is that it's doing something in us. It's producing steadfastness. It's producing holiness. It's bringing us about so that we will be from James 1, 2 to 4, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Abram meant this for evil. His intention was evil. It was self-protection. But God meant it for good. God's plan was very much that he would go to Egypt, that he would lie about his wife, that he would be under suffering for who knows how long, a year or two, and that he would experience this affliction in order to see himself grow in faithfulness towards God. Abram meant it for evil, yet God meant it for good. Verse 17, God intervenes. Maybe a year or two later. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God's providence is what we must always look for in the scripture. God's sovereignty, God providing the answer, God fixing, God intervening, God getting involved in the mess of human tragedy, in the mess of human sin, in the mess of natural disasters. God intervenes into human life. We looked at that last week, that without God intervening, we don't believe in an active God. We just believe in deism. God created a world and he left it spinning. But we believe in an active God who is causing his purpose to come to fruition. So in the midst of this affliction... God intervenes and he pours out plagues upon the house of Pharaoh. Now, what we see, once again, is a foreshadow of Israel in Egypt. Israel's in Egypt. They're under slavery. They're there for 400 years after Joseph. And God comes forth with Moses to deliver them and plague after plague until Pharaoh finally relents and sends them away. Here we have a little taste of that. The house of Pharaoh is inflicted with plagues. And maybe, just like Israel, Sarai didn't get any of the plagues, any effect from the plagues. And that's how they knew that she was the problem. Just like Israel in the midst of Egypt had no effect of the plagues. They didn't have any of the plagues corrupt them or hurt them. They continued unscathed. Here, we see, the dis- we see the discipline of God, which leads to correction, correcting our wrongs. Later, we see the punishment of God. We're going to be clear about the two different things because I think many Christians get it mixed up. I've heard Christians say, I'm being punished by God. You are not being punished by God. If you're being punished by God, you're destroyed. That's it. It's over. Like Pharaoh when he has Egypt, uh, when he has Israel in slavery. When God poured forth his plagues, when Israel is in slavery, they were destroyed. Egypt had nothing left. They were desolated. Remember the last thing that Israel did was they purged everything from their neighbor, took all their wealth as well with them. God destroyed Egypt at that point. In this point, he corrects Pharaoh. It's discipline. If a Christian comes and says, I'm being punished by God, you are, you are undermining the death of Christ. You're saying that it's insufficient because Christ was punished on our behalf. Christ had his wrath, the wrath of God poured out on him on full to the point where he died. He was lifeless. To be punished by God means death, eternal death. Here we see the discipline of God and we face the discipline of God in our life today as Christians. God is disciplining both Pharaoh and correcting his wrongs, and he's disciplining Abraham, Abram, because Abram meant evil by his actions. If we think of Hebrews 12, it reminds us, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It goes on to say that we discipline our own children. How much more is God going to discipline us? It is God's grace to us that he would discipline us and he disciplines us through affliction. Whether natural disaster, whether famine, whether suffering, whether it be sickness, whether it be the loss of loved ones, whether it be our own sin going wayward for a season in order for us to realize that we can't be sanctified without God and his grace. We are afflicted in order to correct. Abram, Pharaoh were afflicted in order to correct, in order to perfect, in order to make complete, in order to make us lacking nothing. In verse 18, we pick up on the story and it says, So Pharaoh called Abram and said to him, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. God brings it about for good. But notice that in Pharaoh's confronting of Abram, Abram, Abram is dead quiet. Abram is guilty. Abram has no response and nothing to say, no grand plan to try and make this better. He's completely dependent upon God to fix it. Notice that at the end, he gets his wife and everything else. God allows him to take all that he got from Egypt, all that he had. He comes out more prosperous because God is good. That's not always the case. Let's not head down a path where we think that we will prosper always. But what we see here in Abram's interaction with Pharaoh is a man who is suspicious of people. His suspicion leads him to lie. He made an assumption about Pharaoh and he also made an assumption about God. He, like Adam, questioned God's goodness. When Adam was in the garden with Eve, the serpent questioned God's goodness and therefore they questioned God's goodness and they ate of the tree they were told not to. The greatest temptation of Satan is always to question God's goodness and we see very much here that Abram's questioned God's goodness by saying, I don't know if he's going to deliver me through this, so I'm going to make up a story. I'm going to lie. He's also questioned God's goodness because he doesn't believe that God can sway the hearts of man. He doesn't believe that God can sway the heart of Pharaoh. But the scriptures all the way through fill us with great joy that God moves the hearts of kings. I love that. I love quoting that to myself over and over again. God moves the hearts of kings. How much more can he move my heart? How much more can he move hearts of people that I deal with? How much more can he move the heart of a politician or a council worker in our city? Abram should have remembered that God is the one who is going to make him a great nation and make him a great name and make him the person through whom all families will be blessed. And if he knew that, he would have remembered the goodness of God and that God can sway the hearts of kings. Yet we as sinful people are so suspicious of other people's response. So what do we do? We go into a situation and we make up our mind of how that person's already going to respond whether we go to correct them, whether we go to have this hard conversation at work, we instantly make the assumption that this person is going to respond this way when you have no idea. We are terrible at assuming people's motives, assuming why people act the way they do, and it shows a distrust in God. We don't need to trust man. I'm not, I'm not saying we should trust Pharaoh or trust people in this world. We should trust God who sways the hearts of kings. So when we go into a conversation, when we come to approach a person, don't make up your minds. Trust God that he will sway the heart of that person. To live out our practice 
sorry, to live out our position in practice means to trust that God is in total control, means to live our life of self-reliance, not suspicious of what people are doing, knowing that God can change it at a moment's notice. I love the hope, the hope that any moment I walk out and preach the gospel, someone may be saved. I don't know when that's going to be. It could be 10 years of laborious evangelism. It could be uh, 20 years, 30 years, or it could be that very moment when you preach the gospel. The hope that they, their heart would be swayed by the power of the gospel, the power of the spirit, and given new birth in that moment. Or a brother or sister, when we go into a hard conversation, when we're dealing with the sin in our heart, Love that in that moment, I know that God can sway them, that God can humble them, that God can bring righteousness into that situation. Maybe it's with great depravity. Maybe it's with great disconnection. Living out our practice, our position in practice, means a complete reliance on God. Abram shows us very clearly that he is not the seed. He is not the seed of the woman. He's not the seed of the woman because he doesn't live it out perfectly. And the seed of the woman will live out perfectly his position. And Jesus, we're reminded, is the seed of the woman. In Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abram and to his seed It does not say to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. That's Paul's commentary on these promises that Abram has. Paul's commentary is he was talking about one offspring or seed. He's talking about not all of them, but one. And the one is Jesus. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who goes and lives a life of testing like we live a life of testing, yet he is unmoved. He does not fail. In the midst of the wilderness, tempted by Satan, he remains faithful. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prays, let your will be done, tempted by the idea of not going to the cross, he resolves to go and fulfill the Lord's will. When tempted by the crowds to bring himself from the cross, to carry himself off the cross, which he could have, he remains until death. Jesus is the seed who crushes the serpent's head, who lives perfectly the position in practice. And he says it in Hebrews 4 that he had to do this so that we have a high priest who is worthy to save us. Let me read it, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. How do we live out our position in Christ in practice? In the midst of testing, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of ongoing sin? tells us in this passage that we may receive mercy and find grace to to help in time of need. We look to Christ. We look to Christ. We live in Christ. We remind ourselves of Christ over and over again. I am not faithful, but he is. I'm in affliction, but he's strong enough to overcome the affliction or to sustain me and give me contentment while I'm in it. We continue with the idea of Christ, we don't allow the word of Christ to dwindle in our mind, but we focus on it. Abram lost sight of the word, lost sight of the promises, and therefore went and lied and did evil. God meant it for good, but we often lose sight of our position in Christ. We forget that he has placed us in the heavenly places. We forget that he has made us holy 
We forget that we are his bride and we act out of that place. We need to remember who we are and act from that position. It's about the word and it's about trusting in his word. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we so humbled by you, so thankful for you, Lord, so thankful for Christ Jesus, who was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. So thankful for the life of Abram, as he gives us a realistic picture of what it looks like to follow you by faith how quickly we desert the promises you've made, how quickly we forget, Lord. As the great hymn says, prone to wonder, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave you, the God we love. So often, Lord, will we quickly rush to make a decision. So often will we practice out of our own self-reliance. God, I pray that you'd give us grace. Give us grace to remember that you're bringing about good. You meant it for good. That we might, we might be in the most severe affliction. But you're meaning it for good. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of the mundane, when life is just moving on by, it's neither hard nor good. It's just, it's just there. Would we recall who we are, call where we're seated, and would we live from it? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.